Hey, it's Cam. Welcome back to another episode of This Might Be Helpful, and I sincerely hope that it is. Today, I am joined by my friend and kin, Mr. Simon Lee. Thank you for being here. Kia ora, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm so stoked and grateful to have met you, and I love the synchronicities that have emerged and the way that even just our first conversation has um, unfolded and provided just so much perspective and so many prompts for self-inquiry and the way that we are engaging with our practice and with each other and with the world. Uh, for a bit of backstory, Simon came into Wild Heart Yoga Tribe to give the uh, a workshop to all of the teacher trainees on Ayurveda and I just resonated deeply with your vibe and your teachings and the way that you're showing up and we caught up last weekend we were going to do a podcast and we ended up just hanging out for four hours and it was so restorative and really special and so we're back this weekend to then get some of that conversation on record because I think we have a lot to talk about. I'm ready for it. All right, dude. Um, before we, I guess, dive into the unknown and wherever this podcast will take us, because we have some ideas and some prompts, but uh, as a divergent person and an intrepid explorer of our reality and citizen scientists, we never know where it's going to take us. And that is the most exciting thing about podcasting is that I know that anybody listening to this will go on a journey with us and we have no expectations around where that is going to be but before we go into that please tell me where you're from and how you arrived in Cairns this journey hmm yeah the word synchronicity comes to mind as well and just following following signs or guidance that seems to lead to greater results than if I let my mind try to do the work so I did originally come here a month ago to do some work in the in the field of yoga and Karanda up on the hill there um, so I'm from Aotearoa New Zealand and I'm just here for just over a month to be in service to a friend's yoga studio really and through that opportunities expanded and that led to wild heart and offering the ayurveda module as part of your teacher training and and then be meeting beautiful souls along the way you know and one thing keeps leading to the next I've, I've extended my trip now and i've got another week left so um yeah just good to be here but to, to answer your question about where i've come from i was born in aotearoa new zealand aotearoa is the indigenous name for new zealand and have german parents so i, was, I grew up in New Zealand to German parents so in that sense there was kind of two cultural influences my parents had just arrived to New Zealand just before I was born so my early childhood was very influenced by um, German culture German language was my first language German food German philosophy mm. um, also very atheist I could say in nature as well so it was this very linear intellectual kind of environment as I was in my earlier years and and then growing up in a western country or a western influence country with strong indigenous roots 
I kind of followed a relatively mainstream path, I could say, until university, business management studies, et cetera, et cetera, and was following this path of not really sure what I was up to, but trying to fit in with everyone else until until I met yoga, actually. Yoga was mm. really what caused quite a quite a shift. And the reason I mentioned the, the atheist upbringing is because it was yoga that opened my worldview to something a lot deeper or bigger or however we define that and and so that's was about eight years ago and the last eight years i've been in study of these philosophies and with various teachings and teachers and lineages and and which includes the ayurveda as well and we can go into that if, if you like of what is ayurveda and um and then the last two years i've also received some teachings from the maori people from the indigenous um, back home and that's been really insightful as well and really expanded my worldview again and in a lot of ways exploring that vedic culture and the maori culture i i have come to see a lot of similarities in any system that acknowledges oneness mm. yes and i want to i want to get into this because I stumbled across a word in the last week since our discussion called syncretism, which is the study of the interconnectedness of all philosophies, religions, and practices, particularly those that have a foundation of oneness. And we are very much healing from the westernization and the colonization of philosophy, spirituality, culture, religion, practice. and it's like healing back into oneness and it's something that we have to learn through this exploration of it and you know the, these ancient cultures and philosophies that have this bedrock and this foundation of unity and oneness and the process of life is that of unlearning anything that create separation coming back to oneness and unity while you are in this lifetime as opposed to the western and westernization where it is this big fractured mess and maybe you get to a place of unity at the end but that unity is still not here it's elsewhere and i wonder like with your upbringing and the german philosophy what was that like i guess there's an aspect to the German side that I still feel I would like to discover more. I feel I at some point will journey there and inquire deeper into what is the German philosophy because as I've opened to Vedic philosophy and then Maori philosophy it has brought that question of what is what is the philosophy of my own whakapapa is what we'd say in Maori and my own family lines, my own ancestry. Uh, so I actually don't know the answer to that other than my immediate environment as a child of the food we got served and the language and German was my first language so there's that influence but coming to language actually is what I wanted to bring in because we were just speaking about that before we started and the English language and um, there's a Rasta teacher who has been a big influence on me Vaughan Benjamin his name is also known as Midnight or also known as Akai Becker and he's no longer in his body but he he has had a big influence on me and his lyrics and his songs and his words and his 
his interviews and things and one thing he speaks about is how the english language is encoded with polarity Mm. or duality and he talks about the inverse square law that exists within the english language and how the english language is in some ways designed to keep us in a state of not seeing the oneness and so when we then look at teachings that are based on oneness like vedic teachings like maori teachings and i'm sure there's many more i'm sure the indigenous of this land are Mm -hmm. also tapped into that as well then there's almost a battle between the suppressive forces that are trying to keep us in duality and those that are recognizing the interwoven reality of everything and and so when we look at sanskrit vedic teachings or maori which are the two that i've had some exposure to the language is more vibrational or sound based in its nature as opposed to man-made or created from the mind so we're able to tap into the frequency of that knowledge Mm. as opposed to the intellect yes it's there are languages that vibrational in essence they are of the body of the earth of the land of experience rather than english which i feel is far more conceptual like it's it's a realm of concept it's a realm of mind and you know we our ability to think and perceive is something that really is kind of uh not completely governed and dictated by our language but certainly influenced by our language like we have the capacity to see relative to what our language has provided us the tools to understand like if if words are these things that we use to chisel meaning and understanding out of this big energetic soup then they're also the the contact points we have with this reality and so that we're not making direct contact with reality but one mediated by the words we use to describe it Mm. and then there's the kind of the illusion effect that comes in that because we have the words to describe what it is that we're seeing that we also understand what it is we are describing when that is not necessarily the case well let's use that word as an example understand Mm -hmm. yes we go into exploring the subtleties of that word or what's happening on a subconscious level to stand underneath to understand is to be less than and if we have that encoded in our subconscious and we're walking around constantly being underneath something else whether that's underneath a a teacher or underneath a political system or underneath any one that we're putting on a pedestal then we're not recognizing that equality or the divinity that exists and so coming back to the the Rasta example, they would often replace that word with overstand. And so if you listen to some reggae music, you'll often hear overstand instead of understand. And an example that similar that's more specific to yoga, because I, I do feel to speak to yoga at some point as well, and how yoga has been very misinterpreted in the Western culture and has often been reduced to 
exercise in aesthetics in the mm. words of of a friend that shared that recently whereas the system of yoga is actually a a science to remember that non-duality and i say remember intentionally because it's not something we're looking for externally it's not something that is outside of us at all it's it's removing the layers of illusion so that we can see clearly what's already here and in that same spirit of, of anyone that's teaching it's it's already here there's nothing to do there's nowhere to go it's it already exists in all things and the part of that remembrance is also the forgetting of oneself like you forget yourself and so arrive in that full self when it's like one of the reasons that a flow state is so beautiful is because you forget yourself there's not a, a, a self there's not a cameron that is doing and acting this out there is just the flow of experience without the description and categorization and naming and judging and defining what this experience is which kind of tries to chop and segment things up it's just the the flow of the phenomena of reality when you say forget the self a question that comes to my mind is who is the self that we're forgetting so first the question of how are we identifying as our self who is the i and the deepest one of the deepest questions i've come across in any of my own self-inquiry or study is the question who am i who am I? How do we define the, the I? And some some would define that as the name that we were given or the job title that we have or the, the cultural identity that we have, the label on our passport, those sort of those sort of identifiers. But when we go deeper into this remembering, re hyphen membering, calling all members of our self back in, it's it's an unlearning of what we've been indoctrinated and in that unlearning then we can start to recognize who we really are and so when you say forgetting the self i'm assuming you're meaning forgetting the false self yes the, the egoic self the cameron the one that says i me and my um the version of self that is created through separation in order to understand where I am relative to space and time and this forgetting of oneself it's it's like forgetting of one's selves coming back to the self and you know it's such a visceral and palpable experience in meditation where as you go deeper or you become lighter or you go higher it's not that you are moving in relation to yourself it's that this thing that is saying i me and my this egoic show gets quieter and quieter and quieter or awareness becomes more saturated with everything else and so that ego show it just becomes almost the first layer of external reality and then it's the backdrop of reality the stage on which that self plays that you become and it's like it's it's the it's the pervasive self it's 
while while all of the materialistic objects that Cameron may have right now, all of the relationships, all of the accolades and achievements that he is striving for are not something he can take when he leaves this body. It is something that can be fully, fully experienced in its entirety while he is here. So one practice that comes to mind for this sort of inquiry is to ask yourself that question, who am I? An answer will arise such as the name Cameron or such as Simon or a job title or and then to acknowledge that answer and then to ask the question again, who am I who am I beyond that label? And seeing it as a process of elimination so you're asking that question multiple times and every time an answer arises go another layer deeper who am who am i who am i beyond that and the this teaching comes from sri ramana mahashi who's a who's a great sage from from india and and he would he would say to just keep asking yourself this question over and over and over and over until you eventually get to the truth and I look at that, it's almost like the mind building a ladder to escape itself. Because you, we have to use the mind in these inquisitive practices to get above the mind or to get out of the mind or to get beyond the mind, to get to a place where the mind has not been and cannot go. And it's like, it's like, swimming up from the bottom of a lake uh, reaching the very top and you can't get out of the lake but you can see its reflection i would say we we can use the mind i would say there are also other pathways up the mountain that don't require the mind but the mind can be a useful tool towards recognizing these states however we have to acknowledge the limitations of the mind as you say that the mind can be a a ladder that you describe it as it's like building itself a ladder building itself a ladder to to get to a certain point and the way i i resonate with that path a lot with the german background being quite intellectual and and these sorts of things that in the path of yoga for example for me it has been a very philosophical path it has been a very intellectual path of seeking the philosophies reading them the books the the taking that I was about to say understanding, but perhaps overstanding, taking or understanding, taking that knowledge, bringing it internally to to then seek beyond it. So if you know, and I've explored communicating this with different people that who we are is not the identified nature of our mind you know who we are is not what our mind has cooked up as an answer to that question who we are is beyond that and we can't really find that answer through the mind but the mind can take us some of the way and then there comes a point where we have to jump from that place Mm. and i remember last time we had a conversation the word faith came up Mm. and i feel there's an element of of faith required as well when we get to that edge of the mind the mind has taken us so far the mind has undone some some illusions but then there's there's more to go after that point mm. as terence mckenna described it it's like jumping off of the abyss and landing on a feather bed mm. nice yeah because you, you do have to 
that, that faith is tied to surrender because through the process of surrender, what are you surrendering to and what are you surrendering for? Surrendering control, surrendering the doing, surrendering the figuring out and entrusting in this, whether we call it force or consciousness, this, this, if you know is because faith isn't the same as belief either and i'm not sure on the intricacies of those words right now it's not coming to mind but it is it is a leap because it is the the surrendering of knowing and the trust in the unknown and faith is how you trust the unknown the words the word map is coming to mind here that it's useful when exploring those spaces beyond the mind to have a map and not to say that we need a map we can still get to where we're going without a map but a map is useful as a tool in order to get there and it's through those systems such as you know the vedas or maori that i've been past some maps that have helped me to see what's going on on those more subtle layers to not feel overwhelmed or lost when starting to to drop the layers of the mind Mm. because yes because there are, are are forks in these roads right like you can come to this uh this understanding that we may be adrift in a purposeless void and that there is no inherent rhyme or reason to what we see here that there is no defined uh, purpose that even free will itself is is really limited to the conditions of our language of our environment of the formula of circumstance and choices that led us to where we are and that i could do anything as long as it's in the um the the realm of what i can even think of and what i'm actually able to do and that every decision that is made even if i think i made that decision it's that a decision was made and there's less of the i involved in that process than you might think and that can lead to to nihilism and absurdism and this like and hopelessness and so faith is how we alchemize hopelessness into hope it's you know it is it is how we can maintain or lean into this forward tilt that keeps us going, keeps us questioning, keeps us evolving and going beyond that point of absurdism or nihilism into a place of love. And somebody said in a video, I think it was Napoleon Hill, that fear is faith in reverse gear. <laughs> Which is great. It's like, oh, you're, you're, you're afraid? Can we alchemize and transmutate that into faith? Can you lean into that fear with faith? Have faith that that fear is an indication of something great, of something meaningful, and is not like because fear is that like let's put that in reverse and go go out of there. But faith is like let's go forward into this foggy night. That surrender to the unknown. A um, a quote's just coming to mind. The only thing we need to know. Is that we don't know because in the act of not knowing we are open we remain open we don't put a cap to 
our experience and in knowing that we don't know and learning to be comfortable in the unknown that's when we can expand that's when we can grow or or deepen that connection to truth and that is a really fundamental um point and an opportunity when we come into contact with this unknown but then see seeing how all pervasive unknowing is and that there is a real comfort and contentment and satisfaction that can come from that surrender because it releases the argument with the world it releases any notions of 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 victimhood and fairness because it's like this this again this emergence of phenomena into a symbiotic dance or clash of conditions and there's that that to me is a mirror that points it back at yourself being like well i cannot control any of this but i can put faith in myself and my ability to navigate and respond in a life-serving beneficial way to whatever emerges in this unknown and i've looked at knowing as like that's the dead end it's like that's when you begin to atrophy so a classic example of that would be someone who's cracked it in their career so they might be a a well-regarded lawyer or doctor or or something in society that that receives respect say and then i i have this job i have this car i have this amount of money so why would i need to learn more everything's comfortable everything's simple in that and until a deeper feeling comes up of dissatisfaction and i think of ramdas as a great example of this where ramdas for those who might not be familiar with his work was originally a harvard professor in the psychology department and he had cracked it in the material world he had the seemingly best job and the seemingly best office and until he realized that there was a deeper aspect to life that wasn't being fulfilled and it was only through his spiritual quest that he then walked that he found answers that he couldn't find through the material world and this is you know we are, we are really in this i think uh pivotal moment and i say this with some kind of awareness that due to the nature of the ego and the human experience that every moment is a pivotal moment and can be seen as such but really this is a very this is a, a new age because we lack the uh, the deeply ingrained uh, culture and practice and philosophy and religion like if you were you know growing up as a uh, you know a, a kid in, in ancient India how many of these questions we would even have because it was so ingrained in us these the, these understandings of unity in the path and the practice that any kind of uh, spiritual attainment or, or, or evolution was just part and parcel of like how people lived. Whereas now, 
a lot of us are healing from, say, atheism, healing from the effects of religion and conditioning and conformity and resistance to that because uh, any kind of connection to something beyond w what we see with our senses was uh, mediated by these these institutions that morally, ethically, spiritually did not align. And so there was a resistance that comes from that. And then you go to the other side. And then I remember when I was eight years old being like, I'm an atheist. It's like, you're eight, dude. <laughs> I, I would say that that's part of, part of the approach to suppress is all that confusion around religion. Because within, within religion, I feel in all sorts of, religions all sorts of cultures and perspectives i feel there are a lot of truths available to us within those different systems however what the churches have done with those original teachings is really altered them as well in a way that we have to be able to discern what is control what is suppression what is indoctrination versus what is an original truth-based teaching mm. and and what you're describing, that difference between, say, a, a child that grew up in India that was immersed in a culture of non-duality versus someone that perhaps grew up here in Australia or New Zealand that was more in a, a Western-influenced culture that was more separate, perhaps you could say, that there's a lot more that we need to undo or mm. unlearn. And it's not to say we can't do it. And on some level of looking at it, karmically, perhaps our soul chose to incarnate in in these places for a reason and so it's accepting that reason and working with that reason and and so here we find ourselves in western bodies and then we have systems available to us that can help us to unlearn and can help us to remember and and that's where for me personally yoga has just been such a helpful path and i feel to just come back to that for a moment of what I mean by yoga because there might be a lot of people listening to this with their interpretation like of this guy's super flexible and he can do headstands and totally and and there's that reduction of what yoga is and in the words of a friend of mine yoga has become exercise and aesthetics mm. in, the, in the western culture which is totally and again in his words a dismissal of indigenous power mm. and of a system that can actually really help in the current crisis we find ourselves in in the world where you know the mental health struggles and the physical health struggles and all the struggles we find ourselves in politically all sorts is there's answers to these things available within systems such as yoga and for it to not be recognized in its wholeness is a disservice or another indoctrination another colonial like another what's the word colonized outcome mm -hmm. and please let's let's go into this 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 yogic science because um actually the last episode was uh about the yamas because i've been exploring the eightland path and you know, speaking about it is how I learned it myself. And so it's like looking at these branches of the path and applying it to your own life, right? Because as I'm, as I'm learning this, if you are to be a practitioner of it, then be a practitioner of it. And that all of these um, limbs of the yoga path are 
um, prompts for self-inquiry and involution. And the, the asana practice, the movement practice is one component of this great tree in preparation for something. Absolutely. Somebody. So when I look at the word yoga, we could, we could translate that to unity or connection or oneness or non-duality. And, and so in that sense already, we can recognize yoga not as something that we do. It's a state of consciousness that we work towards. So on some way of looking at it, this idea of I'm, I'm off to go and do some yoga, grammatically it doesn't even make sense. <laughs> because we're not doing yoga, we're doing practices to work towards the state of achieving yoga. Practices that remove the impurities that obstruct our perception of what already is. Exactly. So that's where the, the eight limbs that you mentioned, which come from um, Patanjali's eight-limbed path, towards that state of yoga includes asana so asana being the physical aspect and it's, that's described as the third out of the eighth limb so it's you know there's the preparation needed before that the jama niyama and then there's the asana and it's the purification i love that word because it's that's what it's designed for is to purify the energetic body physical body so that it can comfortably be still for the more subtle practices and one of the translations one of my teachers gives for asana is because these sanskrit words we can't always translate them mm. directly to an english word because they're not comparable systems you know often one sanskrit or maori word might need a few pages to translate it or you know so it's um not very linear so another way that asana has been translated is to take your seat yeah. and so the way i've interpreted that is we do the physical practice within the system of yoga to purify so that we can comfortably be still because it's only when we have the pure enough body to be comfortable in the stillness that we can advance in the stillness based practices yes and what i'm loving is that with asana being the third limb and you know this this eight limb path being something that can be practiced sequentially and and in a linear fashion if you wish which is really cool because i've always had this like non-linear approach to life and i was like man it'd be so cool if somebody just put this in a <laughs> in a blueprint for me so i can <laughs> follow it and it turns out yeah there's lots of paths that have been uh, crafted in that way but that before you even get to any physical practice there's the process of the, the yamas and the nayamas. And so that you have this opportunity to purify your perspective, purify your relationship to it before you even get to that practice. So that when you go into that, it is with a more harmonious intention. You're not going into it be like, if, if you've gone through the yamas and nayamas, you're not getting to the mat thinking, oh good, I'm gonna work on my abs today and I'm gonna look really good, and I'm gonna look at all of these attractive people in this room, and oh, it's already the purification has begun so that by the time you get to the practice, you get to drop deeper in because you've gone beyond the superficial layers of, oh, what is that person thinking of me when I do this? And are they judging me because I can't touch my toes? And oh, I can't even touch my toes, so I'm not gonna go to, to yoga. It's the same thing of like, I can't meditate, my thoughts are too loud. Exactly. Meditation is something, again, like like yoga is something that already 
is meditation is something that happens when we've developed the capacity to release or let go of mental modifications. Like meditation is something that is rather than something that we do. That's how I see it as well, that once we've done the preparation work, the state of meditation is something that occurs. It's also not something that we do because the the idea of, of doing something, it still requires that that action or that mental action, whereas the whole point of meditation is to come into that more observations, observational space, which doesn't require the doing. So I totally agree with that. And just on the eight limbs, I feel to share because at first my German brain wanted to see it as a, as a almost a tick box. You know, you you climb the ladder and then eventually you get the reward. And a friend of mine, also a yoga teacher, reflected to me that even those eight limbs are nonlinear, and that oneness that we're seeking it already exists now as well. And if we look through other teachings, like Muji, for example, he would often say direct realization is available right now mm. we don't need to you know it's the eight limbs in that sense can be a map again back to the idea of a map because we can use that map to get to that state mm. but it's not the only way and and like you said with the yamas and the yamas that what is the intention before we even get to the physical practice and if that intention is to purify the body towards evolution very different to i'm going to get on my mat for my body to look a certain way so i can take some instagram photos so that i can feed my ego mm -hmm. very different pathway so getting internally clear on why you're even doing the physical practice mm. is important before doing the physical practice because that will inform how you do the physical practice Yes. And all of these limbs as well, they are helping us to step into a, a better relationship with reality. You know, it's because we are in this age, you know, amongst all of the, the mental health epidemic and the comfort crisis and the meaning crisis all of this really this this crisis of faith this crisis of purpose this deep bereftness of any reason to be right like and we can look at the symbology that has even been attached to all of the words we use to describe a practice like exercise is affiliated with the government saying well you need to do five hours of exercise per week and this is to do with calories and to do with your blood pressure and all of these metrics these these quantifiable metrics that we can use to assess where our health is at but that symbology of exercise may also be associated with guilt and shame because with all of these external motivators of you need to be doing this or else there is the shame and the guilt of I haven't been doing it. And then there's a relationship with exercise that has this maladaptive response. And so to look at these eight limbs as this opportunity to step into a symbology that has this generative effect because 
you're not doing it for any kind of external thing. You're not doing it for an accolade. You're not doing it for a reward or to reach the top of some ladder or to look better in the eyes of other people. Although that might be something that gets you into it, which is great. Like there is no judgment coming from me for anything. Everybody is doing their best. It's mostly about how we can feel better about the things that we do. And that's where we get this really intrinsic drive to move our bodies, this intrinsic drive to recognize and, uh, and mitigate harm that's perpetuated in our lives, this intrinsic desire to come into direct contact with the truth because it is something that resonates rather than something that's going to make you look better in the eyes of other people. It is, it is like liberation occurs through each and every one of these processes. And you can take this direct approach and have that contact with truth in any one of these domains. And it's, it's interesting that you bring that up about um, Muji and his, his really direct approach to waking up. And there's um, some really beautiful teachers on the waking up app as well. I'm not affiliated with that app, although I would like to be. So Sam Harris, if you would like to sponsor this podcast, that would be fantastic. There are these teachers that discuss the, the direct approach to waking up. And to me, and they're all beautiful, but the eight limb path is an example of something that can be practiced in order to develop the repeatable ability to remember. Like something that like this experience of truth and unity and and oneness and non-duality is something that through practice you can build your own paths to that so that you may walk them anytime you know where the road is like you have a map but it's also a map that you've built brick by brick through experience and experimentation yeah you're just unlocking a few trains of thought for me and just on the specific topic of exercise if we see you know if we were to compare that to to the purification process as you're describing what came to mind were the blue zones and the which are areas that have been researched in the world where people live long longer and healthier so it's the highest life expectancy with the lowest disease rates and there's five key areas that have been identified and when they look into why these people are able to have these long lives healthy lives there's many reasons and we could look at those reasons but on a physical level what they were describing is they are just naturally moving freely throughout their day they're not sitting at computers they're not um working nine to five jobs they're working land they're in relation with the land and moving their bodies in a in a natural way it's not a forced way and like you were describing it's not a government prescription of five hours and ticking the box no difference to a mass test in school you know where we're judged based on our worth that then comes with shame and other emotions um so stepping right out of that system and and full transparency the the physical aspect of yoga is actually probably the area i feel i need to cultivate more of and the physical movement and the physical engagement in life is is an area that I'm working on and I can see a lot of you know the gym culture and, and stuff like that as well as 
I, I struggle to resonate with it. I struggle mm. to see that as a healthy pathway of movement and and building strength and resilience. And may have gone a little off off topic there. No, it, it it's on topic because uh, I think that I'm I'm really happy that you brought that up. Um, because a natural thing that we all do is we we project our own idea of a story upon a person right like even me i i actually had this assumption that uh, of of where you might already be with that physical practice right and i think it's really humanizing for for any teacher to say to to remind the students of them also being a student and that there are always things that we can be working on but it's also like using the eight limb path for an example as this opportunity to reflect and see well why do i think i need to work on these things it's like i I hear it a lot from people i need to be doing this i need to be doing that it's like before you go into that first ask do i want to it's like yes all right cool if you don't do you is it a necessity like where is this motivation coming from? And if there is a motivation there, can you find the seed of that motivation? Right? Like, oh, I want to be healthier. Yeah, but why? Why do you want to be healthier? It's like, well, I want to, because I want to be happier. I want to live a more stress-free experience. I want to be comfortable in my skin. Okay, good. What are the seeds of those things? Like, how far can we trace back these motivations and discover this core because if we can get to the core of our intention, the core of our motivation, we can work with that and it allows us to kind of neutralize the inevitable kind of guilt or fear or scarcity driven motivations that we have and come back to this really truthful place of being where what you are doing is enough. Like what you are is enough. Absolutely. And to elaborate on what I was meaning with the physical practice being an area for me personally to focus on more is through the lens of Ayurveda, I would diagnose myself with a vata imbalance, which which means excess air or excess mind energy at, at times, overstimulation, you could say. And when I'm in those states of of perhaps stress is another way to explain that I tend to disassociate from the body mm. and and so in that sense I'm, I'm seeking these subtle experiences that then take me away from the physicality of this reality and so when I say I, the physical aspect of the practice is something I'm seeking a deeper relationship with is to bring more balance back to my experience where I'm not disassociating, mm. where I'm acknowledging that I'm here also in a physical body, in a physical reality, as well as being a non-physical being. Yes, and that's a really key, key aspect because yeah, I think um, I've only apparently just kind of discovered what the term spiritual bypassing even means. And... I don't think I understand it fully or overstand it fully or understand it at all. But spiritual bypassing is almost like this 
this this definite experiential aspect of spiritual connection like there's been an experience of something that that shows more than what this physical body is but then if the focus is only on that then we end up bypassing all of these you know the the elements of physicality the elements of our life i mean life admin it's like cool i went and meditated this morning and came into direct contact with non-duality but direct debits are failing to deny the body is to deny spirit because the body is also spirit spirit being this space in which all occurs including body including self including cameron which then comes to how do we define the word spirit and back to the limitations of the english language and all the different interpretations that the word spirituality has so again it's it's a matter of defining what what do we even mean by that and what do we need to unlearn in our belief structures that have been conditioned over many years and Mm. it's a really tricky conversation when you're talking spirituality to a room of people where there's a bunch of different belief systems in that room and i want to get onto that um that is a note that i have here it's like you know meeting people where they are and the idea that um you know as a as a teacher not wanting to scare and uh you know, push potential students away because they're coming into contact with things that, you know, even the term woo is thrown around a lot Mm -hmm. to describe anything that is beyond somebody's uh, defined norm. Before we get into that, though, I want to go back to the Ayurveda because you mentioned that you have had a vata imbalance and I want to discuss the the doshas. Absolutely. So to give some context to, to what Ayurveda is, for those that may be new to that word, if we break down that word for a brief moment the first part a-y-u-r relates to life and veda v-e-d-a relates to knowledge or science so ayurveda in its definition we could say is life knowledge or life science so it's a very vast uh, scope and yoga and ayurveda both come from the vedas and are interrelated so it's not possible to have one without the other so in the in the colonization of yoga there's also been a dismissal of that which is associated with yoga that needs to be acknowledged so i'm of the view that ayurveda is an essential part of anyone practicing yoga and there's a a book by dr vasat lad that has a beautiful quote and i hope i can get it accurately from my memory Ayurveda is the science of the body and only when the body is fit is the individual considered ready to embark on the spiritual science of yoga and it's when he's saying body I don't feel he's meaning just a physical body he's also acknowledging the mental body the emotional body the spiritual body so it's still a non-dual system yes remembering that non duality is in every word and so that's a that's a hard thing to navigate the mind towards when my entire understanding of reality has been developed through english Mm. so recognizing that non-duality is baked into every term that is described and expressed so while ayurveda is the science of life so we could talk about that as the physical life the physical reality we find ourselves in it we need to find balance and harmony on that level to as preparation to embark on those more subtle 
um, endeavours and in that sense Ayurveda works a lot with the elements so the the building blocks of everything you know we can look at those elements as the the earth the water the fire the air the ether and these are the the building blocks or the energies that combine to form different expressions and that can be a physical object that's around us but it can also be our body so Ayurveda can also be seen as a health system in that sense because it does also address the human body in terms of what are the building blocks what's the makeup of our bodies and and to come to the word dosha that you introduced dosha can mean constitution so it's it's effectively those elements in combinations to form our constitution and there's three main constitutions that are described as kapha pitta and vata and they represent combinations of those elements so when i spoke about the vata imbalance earlier that's more governed by the air and the ether element so one of my teachers describes the modern world as most people have a vata imbalance and in other words regardless of whether that's their prominent constitution because most of the world is overstimulated in the Mm. way we're living and so how we can interpret that through a lens of ayurveda is that there's too much prana in the mind there's there's too much prana in Ah. those more subtle energy centers or chakras so to come back a, a little moment we can learn through the system of ayurveda how to find balance with the uniqueness of our individual nature and we have to recognize our individuality here which perhaps could seem to contradict what we we're speaking about earlier with the if everything is one how is it that we have different bodies and these different bodies have different needs so there's within that's a whole philosophical conversation of being a fractalized aspect of the whole mm-hmm. and within our unique fractals we have unique combinations of those elements unique doshas or constitutions and first we have to learn what is our constitution so that we can work to find balance or harmony with the nature of ourself and so in that sense we can see ayurveda as the the foundation for our yoga practice because first we have to find that that balance to then use as a springboard to the more subtle practices and that requires seeing seeing it through a lens of dense to subtle we're moving from from the crude the dense the heavy the earth to the more subtle frequencies that exist beyond the limitations of the physical earth which is the spiritual pathway of yoga to towards that recognition of the non-duality and oneness so does that paint a little picture yes. of Ayurveda? Yes. So looking at the constitution, you know, uh, another word we might have that for that is uh, our makeup, our profile, our uh, distribution of elements. And I remember you discussing um, constitution in two aspects. One being your almost your ultimate constitution your no your constitution at conception so it is what what is your most foundational base self that which is unalterable that which is the 
the substrate for everything and that is created at conception of you and then the other constitution is like what is my current health constitution and so recognizing um or, or you know trying to i guess discover and this is where like an ayurvedic practitioner and doctor would come in to help you discover what your maybe original or conceived constitution is so that you can then discern what your current constitution is relative to your foundational so that you may then engage in a practice that helps to rebalance your doshas back to your constitution of conception that's exactly how i see it as well so there's that point at conception where where the soul is incarnating and uh, where exactly the soul incarnates i'm not so clear about and when certain things get formed we can acknowledge that we're we're born into this reality as a as a male or a female or as this ethnicity or on this land or that land and so there's certain choices that our soul makes of of where and how to incarnate and that choice also includes which distribute what distribution of elements to have and or what dosha to have or what constitution to have and there's an aspect to that constitution that is set that doesn't change just like the the gender doesn't change just like your birthplace you can't just mm. rub that out mm. and put something new you're that's where you were born you yes know, i don't i don't like that <laughs> and then we have the experience of life where we're exposed to many different things and that includes our food we're eating the water we're drinking the people that we surround ourselves with the sort of mind states we get ourselves in and that has an effect on our constitution that takes us either all of our experience in life takes us either away from balance or towards balance and or perhaps staying neutral as well so anything that's going to take us away from our natural constitutional state is effectively going to create an imbalance mm. so the job the job is to first recognize what is our natural state that constitutional state and then to recognize where are we out of balance with that mm. and then to take corrective action and that's where there's a lot of information within both ayurveda and yoga on how to bring back that balance and harmony through a range of different systems which includes the food we're eating which includes the postures we're doing which includes where we're living how we're thinking the people we're surrounding ourselves with okay and so we have these doshas and these doshas uh kind of they map onto this uh, scale of density right like um if we have these these elements that ayurveda looks at and what are the elements it's like earth earth water fire air ether so i've said those in order from dense to subtle and what you're alluding to with the doshas is that they also can be seen through that same lens of dense to subtle so we have kapha which relates more to the earth and the water elements pitta relating more to the fire and a little bit of water and then vata which i mentioned earlier is the air and ether so we can look at the at the doshas through that lens as well of dense to subtle with kapha being the the more heavy to vata being the most subtle mm. and so for anybody listening to this right now you might be curious to use this as a framework for introspection you know when we are feeling really really dense and flat demotivated tired we're maybe in that kapha state and um 
we might want the, the, the motivation, the desire to move and, and do things, and that would be more pitta. Whereas if we're caught in a realm of overthinking and um, stress and anxiety away from our body, then we would be in that uh, vata state. But these are also all interrelated, and you are not one to the exclusion of others, but a mixture of all at all times, but that distribution might lean towards a certain direction. So most people, would they have a, a natural tendency to be over on one side of this triadoshic scale? Yeah, it's most common that someone has one dominant dosha, and then a secondary one, and then a third one that's of lower proportion. But as you mentioned, it's firstly important to acknowledge that we all have all of them. We all are made up of all of the elements just in different proportions. So once we start to learn about our uniqueness, we can see uh, actually I have, I'm dominant pitta, say for example, or dominant kapha. And within that, it's important to acknowledge that there's not one that's right or wrong, better or worse, just because kapha is more governed by the earth energy doesn't make that the heaviness of that wrong. Mm. It just makes that, the nature of that person mm. and the soul chose to have that nature for some reason so it's about uncovering what is what is the reason to be governed by more earth in this lifetime and perhaps it's to be grounded perhaps it's to have stability have loyalty and and all of these doshas have the balanced expression and the imbalanced expression and so when there's a kapha dominant person who is balanced in their kaffiness they're gonna they're gonna be have a lot of a lot of good things going for them they're gonna be grounded and loyal and stable and but when they get out of balance that's when the the negative side of that heaviness can stick and come in with which could result to depression or stagnancy or lethargicness and so if someone's recognizing ah oh, they have a kapha imbalance then okay there's an excess of those heavier earth energies how can that be stimulated or moved and that's when the introduction of certain practices or or diet items could come in to help break up some of that stagnation to to lift it and similar for someone who's pitta with a lot of fire they on a balanced side they might be very motivated driven um a lot of CEOs, for example, will be pitta people because it takes a certain level of drive and motivation to, to get to that sort of expression in life and it often will require a lot of fire. So someone that's naturally mm. got a lot of that fire available will, will often get to those spaces. But an imbalanced fire, which could either go as not enough fire or too much fire, let's focus for now on the too much fire side that can result in greed power complexes control complexes anger those sorts of expressions so um and then for vata just to complete it as well the balanced vata is you know those air qualities someone that's very intuitive creative artistic perhaps on the balance side but then the imbalance of that can be anxiety overwhelm overstimulation so none of these things are, are right or wrong i'm just painting the picture mm. that they can be in balance or out of balance so what's important really is just to figure out what is our nature mm. and and then figure out what is our imbalances because once we know those things we can then take corrective action to come back into harmony with our natural state and the idea is that ayurveda can be seen as a preventative health model because 
once we are aware of our natural state and aware of our imbalances, we take that corrective action, are in harmony with the nature of who we are, so no disease will manifest. And if we break down the word disease as dis hyphen ease or a lack of ease, if we're in harmony, there's no lack of ease. So mm. no disease will come to us in that sense, preventative health. Mm. And my, you know, my, my sensation when I first you know, came into contact with, with your teachings at, at this workshop was, oh, this is a, this is an ancient holistic framework for attending to oneself like now looking at the various foods that I eat and discerning what constitution they have because every food has its own doshic constitution and it was funny because I over the last few months I've just had this um, this kind of natural uh, tendency to go eat root vegetables when I'm feeling ungrounded and I didn't make any kind of connection. I just thought, damn, these sweet potatoes are hitting the spot. And I was getting this wonderful energy from it. Really just like a, a grounded, um, but very utilitarian energy from it. It just suited my physiology. And that's what I was thinking at the time. I'm like, oh, I must have needed these kind of complex carbs. But then seeing this uh, Ayurvedic uh, food pyramid almost. Yeah, like it is. it is. Uh, uh, this pyramid and seeing where different foods rest and their relative to their density and what that might do for us or whether you know things like like spice and that has that very pitta energy and very digestive very powerful very hot lots of movement lots of action and how we might look at foods relative to their energetic density and what that might do to our energetic density and whether we are eating the right foods to, to, to bring us back to that original constitution and being really intuitive with that as well. And we can be intuitive. And I think a lot of the time cravings and urges can, um, can obstruct intuition like that because intuitively you might be leaning towards a certain food because there's something in your body that says, yes, like I'll have times where I'll just have this, this craving for like, oh, you need to go eat Greek yogurt or you need to go like eat some kimchi or some um, dalmades, like something with that fermented aspect to it. And it's like, all right, my, my body's craving some bacteria that it's missing in its microbiome. Um, but then looking at the, you know, the, the doshas of those and seeing how that relates to it. And then the doshas of practice, right? Like, say you are a very pitta person very fiery very energetic lots of movement you might be naturally magnetized and drawn towards a really intense style of practice say like power yoga but that mightn't be what you need you might need yin or gentle it can totally happen that especially for pitta to be drawn to the thing that brings you out of balance and so it's you know someone that's pitta with a lot of fire might want to keep having coffees for example because they might want to keep that stimulation going but it's like you're saying it's counterproductive to to what they really need and and to come back to your example about the root vegetable and the the ungrounded feeling we could look at the ungrounded feeling as a vata imbalance of an excess of of air which leads to the ungroundedness and then 
if we look at how a root vegetable grows, it grows into the earth. So that's an energetic force. And in this philosophy, the Vedic philosophy, we could use the word apanavayu, which is mm. a downwards moving pranic force. So the direction of that prana is traveling is downwards in that case. So when we eat that vegetable, it activates that force within us of, of downwards moving prana, which is grounding, calming, similar to when we fold forward to the pose categories of forward folds in, in our yoga asana activate that pranic force as well, apana vayu, downwards moving prana. And so if we can recognize, okay, I have a vata imbalance, I'm ungrounded, there's a there's a range of different things that can be done, like eating a root vegetable or like doing a forward fold that can help to bring that balance back. And uh, that is something that I, I wrote down before, um, the apana values, and maybe even before that, um, touching on prana, in case anybody listening doesn't mm. know what prana is. So prana is the, is the Sanskrit word for life force energy, and there's not a really a direct translation for it because this concept doesn't exist in the English language. Um, but other traditional cultures have a word for it. So Chinese medicine refers to it as qi, and in Māori back home, they call it modi, which is chi or prana as well. So mm. it's this idea of of life force energy that's not visible perhaps to the human eye. So it's not that same energy we're getting from eating food. It's it's even though we do get prana from eating food, we do get life force energy from eating food. But we can also get that prana through breathing or but we could see prana as well if we look at the energetic body we can see that there's what's called nadis in sanskrit which is the rivers or the the pathways of energy where energy travels through the body so in chinese medicine they call that meridians so it's the it's the energetic network through which prana travels in the body and if we were to take this example outside of the body for a moment and look at a, a city we can see the power grid mm. and there's certain areas on that grid where there's higher concentrations of energy you know for example those boxes on the side of the road where i don't exactly know what's happening in there but you can hear that humming sound when you walk ah, past it and uh-huh. then you've got the power lines that are going out to the individual houses and then somewhere is a big power station where there's the creation of this power right so if we take that idea into the body now we've got certain areas in the body where there's a higher concentration of power lines and what that starts to do is to spin so when there's a high concentration of energy it starts to spin and that's that kind of humming sound you can hear when you're walking past those boxes on the street it's spinning energy and so one of the translations for a chakra as well is wheel. And the reason for that is because wheels spin. So there's spinning energy. So we can look at the energetic network of the body as being made up with the chakras and the nadis because it's the, the nadis are the energetic rivers that are feeding into the higher concentration centers of energy, which we could call the chakras. And and then we have the prana vayus. So vayu means the direction or the or the wind or the way in which that prana is traveling because prana can move in different ways. And we can influence the movement of the prana based on things like yoga asana. And so to 
to be able to effectively direct someone else in a yoga asana class we need to have the awareness of how prana is moving and there's five main directions that prana travels in and a prana vayu the downwards moving force that we described through the through the kumara the sweet potato or the forward fold is one example of one of those five directions and then there's also other directions as well like so pran value comes in and slightly rises apana value is downwards in its nature then we have viana value which is circulatory non-local so that one governs the the blood flow the lymphatic flow the auric field then we have samana value which governs the digestive forces so it's a circular um movement centered at the navel and then udana value which is an upwards moving force and no wonder um with relation to even the the uh, way that people are breathing nowadays um often you know staring at a screen hunched over so that the throat is closed often maybe breathing through the mouth into the chest what kind of uh, value if any that stimulates and then what that does to a, a, a doshic imbalance like it's like short shallow breaths in and out of the mouth in and out of the chest that kind of creates a state of um, it's a bit of anxiety and anticipation you know releasing cortisol it's going up into the mind we're staring at the phone being stimulated and all of that is like just this rush of, of vata energy whereas a deep slow breath sending it down into your body would be taking that energy and, and pushing it in a different direction yeah that's a great example so the the vata imbalance example there of if someone's hunched over and breathing shallow a lot of rapid chest breathing energy is probably staying in those upper areas and then vata imbalance so anxiety and those sorts of results and and the the antidote as you described is to calm the nervous system to send that breath deep into those lower energy centers which we could refer to the more earth-based energy centers to have that <sighs> grounding effect and and for anyone listening who's resonating with this idea of having a vata imbalance or being overstimulated the antidote is also right there as well and forward simply by folding the body forward and extending the exhalation breath so that's that's also the antidote the extension of the exhalation breath making the exhale um perhaps twice as long as the inhale will help to to calm and alleviate that overstimulation mm, and part of that as well having the heart above the head mm. yeah i could see that as and well. you know what that does because with these energetic centers uh whether we look at it from a biological perspective from a neuro physical perspective from a um from a chakra or prana perspective there are these energy centers in the body um and they all have these natural currents and directions of that movement and whether you know we have the nadis and what there's like seventy-two thousand nadis supposedly or maybe. yeah that's that's the number i was told and i have heard other people say other things but effectively the way i heard about the nadis was is not something that science figured out or was able to count it was something that was revealed through okay. meditations so through someone that can feel the subtlety to that level showed 
what the map looked like. Okay, and that might have been, is that a, a, a Rishi? Yeah, I'm sure it was Rishi or Sage from India, yeah. Okay, okay, fantastic. Just like uh, Sanskrit was not created, somebody didn't sit there and, and go, these are the words that we're going to use to describe. It was the natural vibratory essence of whatever it was that emerged naturally and the words were just there as opposed to were made. Okay. Cause I, you know, again, like back to the syncretism, you know, trying to see where all of these things interlink and interlace, you know, with prana and uh, relating to chi. And then the ancient Egyptians called it ka and native Americans, it was knee. And so this, this is only a foreign concept to the Western mind who, you know, we might even look at it as, as the aura or the energy body, but even that because of the conditioning and where we are approaching these concepts from, we already have this, ah, that seems pretty woo. It's like, where are the odd ones out, bro? (laughs) And I think learning to live in the contradiction as well, where it doesn't need to make logical sense. Faith. Faith. Because if we recognize the limitations of the mind, that's when we can start moving beyond logic. Mm. Mm. Yes, because, uh, you know, it's, you know, and back to even that mention of the, you know, the person that's cracked it in their career, say the doctor who's become a specialist and made it to the very top of their ranks. The side effect of specialization is that it fragments reality into a hyper localized understanding of things. And so the specialist in biology would say, well, this is all biology. And the specialist in physics would say, it's all physics. And the specialist in every practice would say, well, no, what's all this? It's like, these truths can coexist. And uh, what appears to be contradictory is actually complementary. And all of these things, once we, it's, you know, in that book, The Cosmic Serpent, the author discusses the defocalization of gaze, which in, you know, we might call that the softening of gaze and how by softening the gaze and not focusing so intently on the singularity of things through that softening of gaze, we get this more holistic picture because as we soften our gaze, the edges blur and as the edges blur, they coalesce and come together. And it is through this defocalization that we get to see the truth in all of these things whereas specialization really it's it's another thing that we have to that we are healing from and i think people are discovering these holistic connections and just the interconnectedness of all of these things and you know everything in this podcast you know whoever's listening hopefully there are mentions that that have synergy with concepts you've explored and um, you know we're saying the same things in different words and through this network of understanding or understanding we get to bring it all together and there's a certain point where you get to let go of the idea of being logical and rational and you do arrive in a place where everything is perceived as energy and that idea right there even though for some that might seem woo the perception of all through energy really does simplify reality that's how i feel as well and coming to that word specialization that that you used it just unlocked something for me of looking back to the whole education system that we're 
that we've come through or that I've come through that it's designed for that specialization right from an early age and so I I see that as colonization Mm. and the softening of the gaze is the antidote the the looking at the bigger picture and when we're trained from a young age to chase the carrot that's pointing us in a certain direction so that we can get this grade that unlocks that job and that job unlocks this amount of money and that amount of money unlocks this sort of lifestyle and then we're chasing this idea of a life that we want to create we're often taken off path from seeing clearly of what this life even is yeah yeah man yeah what a journey what a journey this has been i I love this podcast this has been a superb episode i hope that everybody's still with us we don't usually go beyond um an hour so we're, we're approaching joe rogan territory right now when running these ayurvedic workshops what ends up happening is like I always end up spending a lot of time speaking to water and acknowledging water. And that has a context within Ayurveda, but it it is also a greater passion of mine outside of the Vedic study and approach. And if we are in a pursuit of health, if we're seeking to deepen our connection to nature or the reality of who we are or our health, we have to recognize that we are made up of majority water. And what I love about the Maori culture back home is when they introduce themselves, before saying their individual human name, they'll first acknowledge the mountain and the river and the marae and these different aspects of what has made them who they are before they acknowledge the, the individual self. Mm. So the water being an an, an important part of that because when you drink water you become that water and so the water that we're drinking is critical to our experience in life and when most of us are exposed to town supply water we're taking on these babylonian chemicals Babylon is the the matrix or the institution or the the government prescribed chemical cocktail for us to then have to deal with on a physical level and there might be some some argument for these chemicals you know there might be a reason for chlorine to kill the bacteria we don't want e coli going through the water system mm. and and that on some level makes sense but there's still the the need to detoxify that and when we're already exposed to so many toxins we don't want to keep adding in more toxins so the importance to drink clean water is one aspect to the conversation but there's also another aspect to have living water because we can we can clean water there's some technology that exists to clean water but then is the water alive and back to the conversation about prana does it carry life force energy And similar to food, when you have an item of food and you leave it on a bench, it loses its life force after some time and you wouldn't eat it after a period of time because you can recognize that that's no longer living, that's now dead. 
and the same exists with water when water is not in its natural state which is to flow it will lose its prana so the moment water becomes stagnant held in a tank or held in a fridge or held in a plastic bottle in the supermarket or it might even be called the best spring water bought in a cardboard box it's it's going to also lose its prana because it's not in flow it's the nature of water is to flow and be in movement so the recommendation is to look at your water source and to do what needs to be done to make sure the water is clean and living and when many of us live in an urban environment that's not so easy to do so to find the nearest water source might be a little pilgrimage it might mean getting in the car with a container and and going to the nature and and in that old way of collecting water we need to learn to make time for that or to prioritize that Mm -hmm. because if if who we are is majority made up of water shouldn't that be of importance where that water comes from or the energy we put into acquiring water that serves us and and for me personally it even goes as far as questioning where i want to live you know do i have access to clean living water and at that point we can also recognize the water not as a a static object this is a living being that carries memory and that carries consciousness and so when we're working with water that we're lifting from nature it's also important i feel to have reverence for that water Mm. and to acknowledge that water and to give thanks for that water because that water is literally what will become us so in a world where there's a lot of exploitation of natural resources and not a lot of these energies not being acknowledged what we can do to help support the regeneration of a lot of water that's sick a lot of water that's polluted a lot of water that that needs support instead of seeing it as extracting clean living water for ourselves to consume what role can we play within a larger ecosystem of also supporting those natural waterways to keep serving in the future and to reckon and that's this is coming into non-duality again where we recognize ourselves not as separate we're interconnected with the land we're interconnected with the water so when we're respecting the water externally it's also respecting the water mm. internally and, and vice versa mm. i was discussing this with my friend byron last night who has come up with a quite ingenious way to bring movement back to still bodies of water uh, in a way that facilitates that uh, the oxygenation of it as well you know he and i think he said this to me last night that moving water uh, covers a surface area of four times greater than than still and stagnant water which is which is fascinating to see that through that movement it is it is expansive and uh, what what that may do for us like is is living water when we say living are we talking about the, the the biome within that water? Are we talking about the its 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 status of oxygenation? Are we talking about all of that? I suppose all of that. And this is where the the question of science comes into it because I I'm not inclined to look too much into science. I know there's a place for that, and for many it, that is important. And so I'm sure there's testing that can be done of what is adequate water and what is 
um, water that is going to hydrate the cells on a molecular level. But for me, if water's coming from a natural source and it's moving and mm. there's no farms above that which, which are polluting that water, I don't feel I need to know the science because I I trust that that feels mm. good in my body. Mm. And, and so if I'm able to find a source where I can lift water with reverence from a natural place, I'll just drink it and mm. not not need to know the science of it however where when in other environments or perhaps a recommendation for those that don't naturally know how to access water of that nature or perhaps there's an environment where there's just none available there are technologies available now that can shift that water back to a living state effectively Mm. and change the biomolecular structure back to a back to a living state where the cells can hydrate it. When we drink water, we should never feel bloated. Water shouldn't bloat us. Water will only only bloat us if it's not living water. So the moment water is living, it will be absorbed by the cells. And then that's how we get hydrated. So it's possible to drink a lot of dead water and not be hydrated. So that would be when you're you're just always thirsty. Like there's there's no satisfaction that comes from that water and there is just a like a pervasive dryness i've but there's there's lots of um things to explore here and lots of lots of questions that that i have like i've seen um i've seen people that put uh, like copper and quartz in their water to uh, change the the actual energetic structure of water because water can take on many different structures uh there are even electroceutical devices like a uh, these these pads that emit frequencies and you can change the frequency that is emitted via different apps and so they might um discern what the frequency of like, an apple is or discern what the frequency of coffee is or what chamomile is and then they can emit that frequency into the water and so alter its energetic structure to be more in line with that and you know when i because the opposite of living water dead water and i think about dead lifeless water devoid of the essential minerals we need for that water to even make the uh, biocellular exchange actually enter our cells and i think about the the encoded polarity of our language and how so many of the words we might be speaking might be dead words because our the the energy of our intention may cancel out with the actual original structure of that word it's like i think we spoke about this the other day saying oh man that's so wicked like saying wicked with a good intention but it's actually not the vessel for that intention and so is that just a dead word at that point and thinking about thinking about all of this in terms of again like energy the energy that goes in the energy that comes out the energetic exchange that occurs and how we play a role in that exchange by having reverence for our water by thanking our water we do impart a energetic residue into that thing and that has a flow-on effect with how it interacts with us i you know one of probably my main reason for moving to cans was water Mm. like for for many years 
uh, it was again that same my same friend Byron who 10 years ago maybe even more he said well Cairns will be one of the last places that has living water mm. you know when whatever happens to the climate and we go through big droughts like this will have water and that has always stuck with me and so I in terms of a logical and rational reason for being here of which I you know those kind of came later as the intuitive draw to this place but water was it and I can point there's a hill behind my house that is where the water comes from and that copper load dam I can see like it when it's in fact when it's raining and we've had a lot of water there's a waterfall that pours down from that region and goes behind the house so i know i'm not going to drink that water because it has to go through suburbia to get there but i can see where that water comes from i ride my motorcycle up there just to look at it and along the way there are natural creeks and and springs and you can just pull over and just slurp it from the side there's that um yeah up in the barren gorge as well there's a, a really beautiful uh natural spring there and that water it has a taste it's not only clean but it has character and energy and a substance to it that you do not find anywhere else and once you drink that it there was almost an uh, there's a kind of a negative aspect to it as well because after tra then traveling to victoria traveling anywhere else you're so hyper aware of the water that it can almost induce more fear and so there's a, an aspect of that of being able to let go and drink what you need to drink in order to survive and understand that these things are not to be to contribute to anyone's anxiety this is not to show that you're doing anything wrong this isn't to you know add another thing that you got to be thinking about this is just these are all intuitive things that we do know and when we are conscious of them we can interact more more consciously with our environment with our health with our lives and if that means that a few times a year you go to a sacred place and get some water and use that as an opportunity to really revitalize yourself and put it into a sacred practice with ritualism there are ways of doing this where you don't have to completely disrupt your entire way of living but you can get closer to your natural state of being absolutely cool man all right I think there's a hectic, awesome, beautiful podcast. Is there anything else you want to say? I feel there's one more word to close on when you just brought back the English language again and related that to the water and and the intention. And, and earlier we were speaking about the dilution of indigenous wisdom. It came, it came to mind yesterday, the word mindfulness. And, mm. it, and from a friend... Vinayak back home who was sharing this on the radio interview he was speaking about how a lot of the words have been changed or what you know a lot has been changed generally in colonization in many ways but specifically with yoga a lot of words have been changed was what he was speaking about and he gave the example of how meditation has been changed to mindfulness and then it came to me when I broke down the word mindfulness phonetically or or if you just look at what it's actually saying, a mind that's full, mindfulness, let's fill up the mind. And that is very opposite to what the process of yoga is. So that's an example of 
coming back to that intention why are we saying that word is that because it was given to us who gave us that word what was their intention for giving us that word and how can we unlearn that indoctrination so that we can come back to what is actually quite simple like lifting water from a natural place is actually quite simple and I, I appreciate how you mentioned that's not there to create another to-do list item for someone or, or it's not we're not speaking about this to cause anxiety to to add more pressure to an already high pressured life it's to come back to simple things mm. that are inherent and natural and don't need to be confusing and I come back to that the first way I was introduced to water was through in this way of thinking was through a song by ten uh, by East Forest called Ten Laws, and the song goes through these ten laws, and one of the laws is always know where your nearest water source is, and it hit me straight away. I knew he wasn't talking about where the nearest tap is; it's where the nearest natural, clean, living water source is. And often I don't know the answer to that, so mm. to to start to prioritize that, which might mean a lifestyle shift or a perspective shift or a prioritization shift and perhaps that's the encouragement through this conversation to the listeners out there to start to question what are the priorities yes i would like that to be a takeaway like what are the priorities how do i want to feel where is the closest water source where is the food coming from can i determine where any local farmers are can i in a way become more connected by through literal connection to this region around you to the people who are involved in their craft to the people that put intention into the way that they grow and harvest food to the people that are living in this conscious way and that just before i was going to say you know mindfully interacting and i stopped myself and i said consciously again because i've i've, I've never felt a resonance with the word mindfulness because of that, like I've, I've often used mindlessness. Mm. Like if I want to solve a problem, any problem, whether, whether it's like uh, something that I'm building, something that I'm working on, it's I go and engage in mindlessness, which is the opposite of thinking about anything, which is something where meditation does arise through mindlessness because the mind and all of its modifications can, can drift to the side, can drift a, a, away from uh, direct vision and into more of the peripheral and it is in per the peripheral where the brain does its best work it's where it solves problems it's where it figures things out but it's not through my doing it's through my non-doing mm -hmm. mindfulness that might blow things up a little bit for people There's probably mind mindful mindfulness teachers listening to this in which case like again these are these are all just questions that we're asking um and sometimes you reach a place where the questions keep unfolding and they they show cracks in um cracks in this this idea of where we are and what we're doing and that even things with good intention and good practice maybe we can continue to discover better and better vessels for that practice things that are more harmonious things that align more with your intention so that we're not sh trying to shove an intention into something that was poorly built for it, but something that was really made for it. Back to the vibratory essence of what we're doing. Back to Sanskrit and nature. 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 Yeah. Where can people find your work? And also, if anybody is interested, I believe you do offer Ayurvedic consultations? 
I actually on that note to give a disclaimer I'm not a Ayurvedic medical practitioner so there's a quite a clear difference between someone who would be an Ayurvedic doctor to to what I'm doing I'm more coming from a perspective of informing those that are open and curious what is Ayurveda on a philosophical level so sharing the the framework as a way to understand the reality mm. that we find ourselves in so I'm actually about to start a project back home in New Zealand called Innerstand. So for me, that word has is a word I've been exploring and it's soon going to turn into a, a project. So um, that's coming up. But the way to find my work would, yeah, through email, through um, Instagram. I'm not being very active on social media. That's all something I'm still figuring out. Um, I've been in the cave a lot in the inner worlds exploring and... I'm coming into a time where it, it is wanting to go out more, so navigating that mm-hmm. that pathway. Um, but definitely available to to have consultations with people, but it won't be an Ayurvedic medical consultation. Um, yeah, also available for in multiple ways as well. So yeah, there's going to be a podcast as well that I'm about to start a retreat company and events company and within that is also the one-on-one work as well coming out of the cave and i'm doing just fine God, I got <laughs> yeah dude I'm, I'm excited for you i will have links to anything in the description of this podcast and of course we'll we'll beam your work out there when when you are ready and what it when it is ready such a pleasure to have you here man thank Likewise. you so much thanks for hosting me dude it's been it's been awesome um big love thank you thank you